Kia ora koutou koutou everyone and uh, welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka and Peter Bale in Auckland. G'day Bernard. How's it going? Well it's a bit like, well A there's a cyclone coming and B there's about 95% humidity so I feel like I'm actually broadcasting from Suva. It is really, it's been one of those weeks where you, you just wake up and you start dripping and you go to bed and you're, and you're still Yeah, let's not talk about that. Yep, thank you. Yep. Well, um, because it's that time of the week, I thought we should have a gin and tonic. I know this is something we all like to do and I have a special one today. Oh, good. Are you actually, are you getting, put it up closer to the camera so we can see which one it is? Yeah. This is something called Imagination. Imagination. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. The pun, it's, the gin that um, puts, the, it's, puts it's, the pun into gin. Yeah, yeah good. it's from the company. Pun, the pun into punch drunk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is from the Kapiti Coast. It's got wakami seaweed in it. Of it's course, a dry it gin. Yeah. And um, not far away from Paikokariki. That's where that one comes from. Excellent. It's, it's very seaweedy. Which, which is actually, okay. that's, actually, that's probably, we, we probably could actually get paid for having gin of the week, couldn't we? Oh, you're thinking like a commercial. Um, I am. I am. You know, so we've, we've already promoted the Great Barrier one, the Waiheke one, and that rather weird one that I had, which is made out of Sauvignon Blanc grapes, which I've still got the headache from. But um, yeah, no, and I think, I, th I think, or we get Seedlip, the non alcoholic gin makers, to, to sponsor us. Yeah, well, that's a very good idea. Mm. Now, now that I've had my one sip of gin, we can get straight into it and yeah. surprise you all with. A um, special announcement, which is that later on, around about 4.30, we're going to have another special guest. You might recall those who were on last week. We had uh, Rodney Jones, who did a great job of, of really reshaping the debate on Omicron, pointing out that his uh, modelling um, suggested uh, more like a 1,000 cases near the peak a couple of weeks away, that our hospitals were not going to get overwhelmed, given what we'd done with boosters and with vaccinations. And lo and behold, RNZ uh, picked this up and ran with it on the Monday morning. So uh, Jesus, we're influencers, Bernard. We might oh. get to get paid for wearing our shirts as well. Yeah, <laughs> agenda setters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so at four thirty today, we've got another special guest. Given that was so successful, we've got Nationals Housing Spokesperson Nicola Willis is going to come in and talk about uh, housing. That's our favourite thing, and in particular, did she put the Willis into Willis Street? She is from Wellington, isn't she? I, that's a good question. I don't mm. know. She's um, obviously from Wellington and uh, very active in the Wellington Central. I imagine uh, she, her family probably arrived on the on the Aurora or the Cuba. Good question to ask. What, what, another good question to ask her about her um, her um, um, fucker papa. Yes, uh, and at four thirty she'll come on for fifteen minutes or so. We'll talk about uh, housing. Oh no. Rents. What's happening with the triple mm -hmm. CFA? Um, Kanga order. Is it uh, building enough? and inflation generally, um, and we'll do it uh, slight, slightly down the road from Parliament, where, Peter, it's been an extraordinary week of protests. Um, you're in Auckland, and what did it feel like for you watching on screen? And uh, Well, it felt but I was sort of flicking, but I mean, I, I, I must admit, I felt they, there was almost too much streaming of them, but um, I, I'm really interested in their weird array of connections, the weird array of uh, associated um, conspiracies, concerns. I saw one sign there that said that they were, in fact, wasn't a sign, it was staff said that they were protesting against um, censorship and mandates. And I, you know, we have mandates, but I'm not really aware that we have censorship. And uh, I, I thought that actually should have been qualified rather in that story. But you've got people there who are concerned about masks, you've people there who are concerned about mandates. There are people who want to hang the politicians high. It was, I thought it was extremely amusing the other day, one of the organisers saying, well, it wasn't really threatening to politicians. It was just a good-natured good threat to hang them. You know, it's just nonsense. Um, on the other hand, there are lots of them. They are really committed. I'm kind of interested in the way that the Four Tribes flag gets co-opted whenever I see large numbers of these people. I'm interested in the, in the, um, in the position of the Destiny Church in all of this. Uh, and of that kind of weird media group that appears to have some connection to Steve Bannon and the equally weird group um, Action Zealandia, which released the footage today from what appears to be um, uh, the Bowen Street building that's under construction or under repair right above the Beehive, which is not necessarily where you want the rat bags of Action Zealandia to be. No, and um, I wrote a piece this week. Um, yeah. As was quite grumpy and essentially said we should stop 
um, being complacent and tolerant of uh, this group because I've been uh, following the various protests, <laughs> the various protests over the last uh, few months around Parliament. And over the last 35 years, I've been covering all sorts of street protests as a journalist mm. all around the world. And I'm sure you've done the same too, Peter, in places where people are protesting for their lives and for democracy. Mm. And, you know, it can get it can get ugly. But this, for me, was one of the ugliest uh, protests I've seen. It, not only was it um, not peaceful, um, journalists and others, bystanders were being spat on, shoved, masks were being ripped off, eggs were being thrown at mask students. Um, no tennis balls this time with no, these death threats on them, though. No. It it, something to do with the Australian know, Open. The death threats were there. People mm. said that Jacinda was going to be executed. But they're good-natured death threats, though. You know, they're not. They're, it's only banter, Bernard. You know, it's only bants to talk about yeah. hanging up, hanging up politicians. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. Is a lot of people around the show, um, the good and the great, the civil civil society in New Zealand, who say, ah, oh, you know, um, just let them blow off some steam. They'll go mm. away. Yes, they're being a bit loud and shouty, but um, they're just like us. Uh, they're just not happy about losing their jobs, and I can understand that. And we should just uh, let them uh, let them uh, rent, and then they'll go away. Well, a they're not going away. B they're following the playbook that they've picked up off all of these streams of misinformation mm. they're, they're reading regularly on and the a, and the truckers in Canada, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the truckers in Canada have um, not surprisingly uh, been very effective at shutting down uh, transborder trade between Canada and. The United States, in fact, uh, Ford and Toyota just shut their uh, car plants on both sides yeah. of the water overnight. So they, they understand that they can actually have an impact and they were allowed to park wherever they wanted downtown in Wellington. They're still there. Yeah, was that not just from forward. a tactical that just I, I think it's much more important than we talk that we talk about why they're there, what they believe in, and as some people are saying there, who who organized them and who's paying for it. I think I think what we can see at the moment is that there's a variety there's a rag bag of of groups. It does appear that destiny is connected to them in some respects. I, I presume the Voices for Freedom people are in there as well to some extent. So it may just be uh, a kind of amorphous collection of people and not some kind of conspiracy in its own right. But it did seem as though allowing them to park and allowing them to set up could have easily been predicted. And, and while they do, of course, have a right to protest, they have been allowed to kind of entrench themselves quite quickly. Yeah. I mean, from a distance, it appears that they're just another protest group marching up to Parliament and shouting at the at the gates. But that's not the case. For those people who have been in and around this, they have parked trucks, utes, all around mm. the, the base of um, Parliament, completely blocked all the roads. Um, on Tuesday, when this started, the police were nowhere to be seen. There was not a high-vis jacket in sight. Mm. People were being openly abused and shoved on the streets. The pharmacies doing vaccinations were being harassed from uh, the street. You know, there were protesters spitting at journalists mm. and at uh, bystanders. This was not peaceful. This was not normal. This completely um, seized up all of the normal traffic and um, mm. access ways all around the bottom of uh, Wellington. Young women in particular were being particularly harassed awfully. And um, when you read the, the signs and, the, and listen to the chants, they're not, um, you know, we want freedom now. They're, they're, we want to lynch the prime minister. Mm. Now, um, as I wrote in my, my piece, which was picked up in the spinoff as well and um, uh, has created a bit of a um, bit of commentary. Good. It is, uh, it is, I think it's time to stop being so complacent about this, to understand that, in 2015 and 2016, a whole bunch of people in America and Britain also thought the same about these, quote, deplorables who were just letting off steam and they would go away because they didn't have any real access to power. And uh, they were um, a ragtag rabble of not very useful people. Well, th that group uh, who were funded and abetted by various um, state-connected uh, groups, often from Russia and from China and Iran, were able to get Brexit through. They were able to elect a president uh, who was uh, a traitor and tried to engineer a coup to bring down the world's most powerful... Yeah, you're, got, you're going full, full bore stuff. Well, you know, millions of people have died unnecessarily in the last couple of years because of this ludicrous... 
a conflation of public health issues, the science of vaccines and masks, with political debate. It's not a political issue. This should never be something where, you know, you're a mask, pro-mask person or an anti-mask person, which happily um, aligns with which political party you support. Mm. That's just mm. nuts. And it has cost real people real lives. And the reason I decided to get a bit grumpy about this was on Tuesday in the post-cabinet news conference, and this has not been covered very widely, and I'm sort of surprised. Yeah. Uh, there was a question from Jane Patterson from RNZ to Chris Hipkins as the education minister. Why is it that we're not seeing schools as locations for vaccination events? A lot of the kids are going back to school right now. They're now able to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. The most efficient way to do it, of course, is to have all the vaccinators at schools as the kids walk in, as long as they're uh, with their parents able to agree to be vaccinated. You know, a school is a perfect place to do this. Yes. Get it done fast. And in other countries, they are using schools. Well, Jane Patterson asked Chris Hipkins, why aren't there any school vaccination sites? And he said they'd thought about it. They'd talked to a lot of the schools and the teachers, and it's up and to they the don't want to make them a And they don't want to make them a centre of focus for these exactly. kinds of people. They have already faced enormous pressure, uh, enormous harassment, not just online, but offline. We're talking graffiti, um, protests outside the front gates. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That's a really interesting problem, and I think it should have got more publicity. I mean, somebody makes the I mean, you, you often talk about Facebook's role in this. I think the one that we've both been fascinated by is the way Jacinda Ardern brilliantly uses Facebook to reach people and bypass media, but then her feed itself is then co-opted by these people to it's almost dominated, literally dominated in terms of the comments and so on by these same kinds of people. I mean, I, I, I think you know this is about the right to protest, but they are without doubt abusing the right of protest. One of the people on our um, on our chat also raised the issue of whether the media had caused this problem to some extent by by not giving adequate coverage to people with a different view. Now, I, I think the media in New Zealand has been very uh, compliant but also very effective and has actually also generally operated within the bounds of known science. You, it is extremely difficult when you give somebody like, for example, Michael Baker, the um, Otago epidemiologist, you cannot put him up 50-50 against um, some lunatic. You know, right. I mean, he, it, it is a, it's a disservice to him and it's a disservice to the readers. I mean, we do have to describe what, the, what, these, other, what these people are doing. I mean, I, I thought, um, this week, for example, one of the organisers was literally saying that Hang'em High was was in fact not a threat and was, you know, just an innocent piece of graffiti. But, um, you know, they, they had plenty of scope to to have their voice in the media. But and, and I do think it is interesting, the attacks on the media, and it does worry me a lot because I think in general, New Zealand has been very well served by media. And this, um, is, this is not sorry, the New Zealand thing. The reason why I'm, I'm quite... Um, uh, uh, strident, I suppose you'd say, and I see some of our readers are saying, oh, you're turned into a rant, Bernard. Well, no, I've been thinking about this for several years. I've been reporting for 35 years. I've been watching these increasing streams and misuse and abuse of social media platforms mm -hmm. by malign forces um, that have been documented. Um, the use by um, various groups of Cambridge Analytica to flood uh, various streams and to mm -hmm. uh, effectively um, co-opt the way that the algorithms for Facebook and yep. Twitter and TikTok. and uh, I'm sure TikTok yep. exactly and um, and Google's YouTube. We shouldn't forget YouTube in all of this. Uh, which and I'm just a quick um, uh, lesson in uh, online publishing uh, and uh, engagement increase increasing um you would have uh, you'll understand this much more deeply than me peter but the idea is if you're running a social media platform to spend to get people to spend as much time as possible looking at their news feeds so that means increasing engagement and what they found of course is that the most extreme content from both sides the ones that's most likely to get you to go yeah that's exactly right exactly what i thought even though i haven't read the mm. full article that identifies me as part of my tribe i exactly I'm, and it's um, also the, the the other thing that, that you get with us, and I, I, I want to read a little read out parts of a little something that I shared with you earlier this week from David Aronovich in the Times in London, which I think sums this up. But um, I'm not sure that Mr. Anderson is right, though, when he says that New Zealand media hasn't covered what's gone on overseas, because we have had an awful lot of coverage about how superior New Zealand's approach has, has been. You and I, for example, did a column when I first came back to New Zealand daily about what was going on overseas. Um, 
I, I did also think that on this issue of mandates, like I, I find the idea of mandates uh, unpleasant, difficult from a social, social uh, point of view, and any legislation to support this kind of thing needs to be time limited in my view. But um, I was listening to Norman Swan today, the Australian doctor and um, journalist on the very, very good ABC Coronacast, which I've mentioned before. And he was arguing that, that Omicron makes mandates effectively um, ineffective, pointless, and that they're, not, they're no longer worth the social cost of having them because the rate of spread is so great. Um, vaccination is the only way to go. To diminish the to, to diminish the spread, but mandates are, are just ineffective, and I thought that was quite interesting. And but it would be very awkward now for the government to change its mind about mandates, even if the science suggested that they probably should. Yeah, the prime minister did say again this week that that they would not be permanent and that they would go away. And and you're right, uh, the mandates were really set up under Delta, under Omicron. Mm. Now we know that people are getting reinfected, that uh, vaccinated people are able to not just get it but spread it. It sort of makes the mandates less useful, and particularly now that one of the reasons they were done was to encourage everyone to get yeah. vaccinated, yeah. and pretty much everyone has now. 96% of the population have had their first dose. I know we're not completely there with boosters yet. We're over 50% and climbing, but... Um, you know, that, that task is done. And yeah, and Bress, Bress and Neil point out that, of course, it was there as, as an added incentive to get vaccinated. In fact, I, I had a conversation with a friend this week, one of whose leading and most important colleagues or staff members uh, is going to have to go on leave because he's declining to be va vaccinated. And, you know, it's very difficult when people want to make that decision to give them access to alternative information or to reassure them that they are actually tremendously valuable in their jobs and that you wish they wouldn't make that decision. You know, it's a, it's very hard also as an employer or as a colleague to give to, you know, good information is out there. But I, I do think, and maybe we can address this another day, but the whole media question about whether maybe we should get Colin Peacock on for a guest, guest spot on here from um, Media Watch and really go through this issue of how we think the New Zealand media has done. Because I, I think generally... New Zealand media has been extremely good in this um, and hasn't whipped it up and hasn't overcovered the the anti-vax viewpoints, but it's you know still properly covered things like the guy, the doctor of Murapara and things like that. Yeah, uh, and I think what uh, has surprised people a bit, particularly if they watch TVNZ's news, TVNZ has made a, an active decision to not uh, cover a lot of these protests, certainly at the top of the bulletins, but for the first time, wall-to-wall uh, -wall coverage of the protests at the top of the bulletins this time simply because it was parliament and the scenes were just so extraordinary and uh, I think that surprised a few people um, I I also just frankly don't and maybe I'm I'm uh, I'm jaundiced by being shouted at for uh, two years by people telling me that I'm the criminal media and to give you an idea so I've covered a lot of these marches so uh, my wife, Lynn Grevison, who edits the kaka and mm -hmm. uses a lot of the pictures. Christy Heaven uh, edits, right? I didn't realise. <laughs> saves my butt every yeah. It's absolutely yeah. true. And uh, takes a lot of pictures, is a contributor to images. So we often both go together at these marches. We're at the point now where we hide our press passes so that we don't get abused at mm. these uh, marches. I know people, you know, who are in the press gallery, colleagues who've received handwritten death threats to their home addresses, very specific detailed threats from people associated with the same right-wing extremist groups. Yep. Uh, I can think of one, I can think of one in particular who's done this and where you get, and, and I think, you know, the nexus between anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. uh, far-right extremism, you know, the fact that the act actions of Landia people are in there and sharing this material is extremely interesting to me. Um, let me just read a, a, a little thing that the columnist in England, David Aronovich, wrote this week. He was he's written a book about conspiracies, and I think he, it gets to one of the essences of this, which goes beyond. I mean, the ability that Facebook and social media gives you to organise a, a good conspiracy or a good protest is is what's new. But as as he says here, if you find it hard to believe that a princess can die in a car accident or a president can be murdered by an underachieving fantasist, how much worse to contemplate a virus? or centuries of carbon emissions as being a cause of potential disaster. How oddly reassuring to think that there is an undivine plan that someone is making it up in order to profit from vaccinating you or to control you. So this is, I, I think this is a really, you know, conspiracy theories are deeply reassuring. 
they give you, I, I think I've mentioned before, I have a friend who was a, um, or who announced to me a couple of years ago that he's a, a, a 9-11 truther, that it was, that, that he's absolutely certain it was an inside job. And I, I frankly haven't been able to speak to him since. Um, on the other hand, I now also in the Times, I will put this link up if anybody has a subscription to the Times, but um, Jerry Baker, an old colleague of mine at the Times, reckons that um, elitist snobs are demonizing the Canadian truckers' revolt and that we will end up paying a price for looking down on the people who are concerned about the impact of um, vaccination and mandates. And I, and I think there is some, some truth in that. I, um, you know, Jerry is, a, Jerry is very much against a kind of the, what, what he would call the woke mob and cancel culture. But we do need, I think, as you say, Bernard, to look at the security risks of the depth to which people believe in these things. Uh, and one of the interesting things in New Zealand, which um, Tebu uh, Punaha Matatini has written about, and our friend Mark Dalder at Newsroom and others have written about, is the propensity of um, Maori and Pacific Island people to be particularly vulnerable to misinformation and conspiracies because of their inherent mistrust of politicians often, um, disconnection from mainstream media, which is another reason why possibly the public interest journalism fund that um, people now, some of these people now argue means that we're all bought, not that we have any uh, contribution from that yet, Bernard, but um, it just shows how important it is to try and reach those communities. Yeah, and we, we're understanding now that a lack of cohesion and a lack of good quality information sources, but also the sheer volume and, and scale and uh, depth of coverage of the misinformation sources yeah. is, is, in my view, a threat to national security. Now, that seems... I, th and, and I, I think that's absolutely right, and it needs to be looked... I just don't know what the answer to that is other than being aware of the, the, the trouble with this is, and we, we, I think we've discussed this too, it's a little bit like Godwin's law about you know, bad money drives out good. Um, there is a belief, particularly in the United States, particularly like people who I used to work with, uh, Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, that the way to solve bad conversation is to have more good conversation. And I'm afraid that the, in this case, the, you know, the devil has all the best conversations. Yeah. <laughs> except for us we're on we've got good angels on our shoulders yeah that's right that's right especially when you've had a had a have, sipping gin and have had a good rant the three or four sips it's yeah all. yeah yeah um so uh no this has been a, a big a big week for that um and a big week in eastern europe before we jump into eastern europe one of the no, things look, aren't we aren't we doing nicola first Nicola is um, running a bit late and will be here shortly. Jesus Christ, that's, that's unusual for us to be that unprofessional, for God's sake. No, no, we, we'll get here. I've been uh, just briefly um, corresponding with her on text. Um, so, uh, Eastern Europe, we, um, before we jump in there, uh, one of the things that struck me today, uh, Lynn actually found this, um, we now have the... Um, misinformation bot farms in Eastern Europe interested in the protests in Wellington. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing I st struck me today was a Polish right, far right Twitter account with all the usual um, comments about um, freedom and, um, you know, taking back the country and all of that yep. uh, in Polish, uh, sending a tweet into the uh, hashtag for the Wellington protests with a recipe for a Molotov cocktail. Excellent. Well, we can have that for our next gin one, but that uh, might be a little bit, that might be a little a bit, bit um, too tasty yeah. for us. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, these, these groups, of course, the, the playbook for uh, Putin and his mates and, and China to an extent is to um, create mayhem, sow distrust, basically say, you know, everything's chaos, and the only thing you can do when everything is chaos is turn to a strong man. And look, we've got one. Yes. And, um, you know, when we're the subject of these Eastern European bot farms flooding our uh, social media with these sorts of messages, this is a bad place. To well, funny you should mention that because I had to block um, or I decided to block um, Cameron Slater this week from my Twitter feed because... I, I have I've said this before, but I made the mistake of um, responding to some of his bollocks about uh, vac essentially that vaccinations don't work, that Israel is a good example of why it doesn't work. And I got into a little tiff and he said, not unreasonably, he said, well, if you don't like what I'm saying, why are you bloody following me, you cunt? And I thought, 
oh, actually, I better, you know, <laughs> maybe he's got a point. So I got sick to the max. Exactly. But just a little story about Kevin Slater while you're, while you're yeah. here. He took money from Mark Hotchin, the finance company operator, in mm. 2012. Oh, yes. To investigate my personal financials. Yeah, you did this last. You did this rant last week, Bernard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> anyway, um, uh, he didn't find anything. And um, uh, Dirty Politics is a really interesting book to find out. You know, yeah. It was, it was, this is like a very early version of what we're seeing now in terms of you know trying to screw the scrum of democracy. Yeah, but I think also this this thing of that Lynn and a couple of other people point out. People aggregate, people who want to be anti-something aggregate their various uh, concerns. I mean, the, the presence of the Hare Krishna people yesterday, they're banging their um, symbols was was pretty amusing. I don't actually know what the, what the Hare Krishna community's um, official view on vaccinations is, but I, you know, it's just, it was a really weird agglomeration of people. As, as somebody pointed out, there's the 1080 people there, there's the Free Palestine people there. It, it brings all sorts of... Um, Passions, shall we say, hobbies, um, sores to the to the you know to the same gunfight, yeah. uh, and and I do think that the government has to be, you know, the, you know, the government has to be aware of this, but also be clear about what the communications are. Change the mandate if the mandate isn't 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 working, but uh, also be intelligent about. I don't want to go all Tiananmen Square and run them down in armored cars at night. But um, you know they were allowed to fairly firmly grab a bit of a bit of a hold on Molesworth Street. Yeah, and my argument is um, let's just um, apply the laws as they stand right now. No need for anything new. Just you know tow away the trucks that are parked illegally. Find them uh, when people are trespassing. Yeah. Um, then Doctor just- A asks uh, with the bring back Buck people there. Is that something to do with Buck, Shel- Buck Shelford or Buck is Shelford. it to do with so you've been out of New Zealand for a large yeah. chunk of time I and, it, and I think yeah. even before Buck Shelford was sacked so um, yeah that's the thing he, he's become like a little um, anti-hero of, of um, uh, there was a there, just speaking of Buck Shelford who I vaguely remember there was a there was a very good um, tweet from one of the organizers of this thing doing the rounds today about um, for people forming scrums and playing playing rugby on the fields of parliament because it would be an absolute outrage for the for the police to be seen um, arresting people while playing rugby. Yes, that's right. Now, let's get back to the news. Eastern Europe, what's happening uh, mm. there at the moment with uh, Ukraine? Will we see an invasion as soon as the Winter Olympics finish? Yes, I think we will. Uh, not that it's, you know, um, uh, you know, that's not, uh, prediction is not what I do, especially, especially um, in, in situations like this. But you know, we just had a, um, it isn't going anywhere. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, Macron, we, you know, as I wrote this week a lot in the, in, the, um, in the spinoff, you know, Macron is, as Biden apparently said, trying to be Charles de Gaulle and get in the middle of this negotiation. It's, it's not that people necessarily actually want a conflict, but Putin hasn't put those troops there for nothing. We're already playing half of his game there by having these conversations with them, sending Macron there, his um, meetings with Biden so far, the talks between Lavrov and um, Blinken, the, the, the Secretary of State. The, the, the talks that I loved this week was that the, the British Foreign Secretary is a woman called Lynn, um, Liz Truss, which is a kind of you know, Monty Python-esque um, name. And she went up against Sergei Lavrov, who is you know, the most formidable diplomat of his, of his generation. And he's the Andre Gromyko, if anybody remembers him. And Lavrov just had her for breakfast and said that um, the conversation with her today was like a, a deaf person trying to talk to a mute person. Yes. And, you know, he also tracked her rather badly that by misident- no, she misidentified some territory in Russia as being in Ukraine. Um, you know, so it's just been incompetent as far as the British are concerned and the Russians just dismiss it as uh, grandstanding. And in that particular case, you know, Lavrov is an extraordinary diplomat. He's extraordinarily close to Vladimir Putin and just about as cynical as him. And as we speak, we've got Nicola Willis um, here has joined us in the in the studio. I'm just going to pull back a bit and move the screen a bit so that Nicola, hi, it's Peter Bale here. Are you are you are you um is the Willis in Willis Street um a relative of yours? So this is um, a question from Peter, who um, I have made the mistake of not making sure that Nicola has a pair of headphones, so she can't actually hear you, Peter. But uh, the question from um, from Peter is. Um, 
Nicola Willis and the family Willis, any relation to the Willis Street? Oh, look, I'd love to lay claim to the street, but I can't find any evidence of uh, landed people who were such that a street would be named after them. Oh, really? No, I, I assumed it meant but that you had come on your order. I'm happy to take it as a predictor of a greater future. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're going to we're going to let you and Bernard do this dialogue because then then you can hear you can hear him because he's there and he knows a lot about housing. Fantastic. Now, um, uh, welcome in to Nicola Willis, who's the national uh, spokesperson on housing in uh, in Wellington here, and has had a busy week uh, in Parliament, um, throwing questions at Megan Woods, uh, particularly around the issue of rents and kind order. What did you discover in your um, written questions and in the House on? Uh, rents and what kind of order after? Yeah, well, the, the issue of rents uh, is a big one. So the latest stats NZ data has come out, and what that shows is that December, to the year to December, we had the biggest ever annual rise in median rents, so up $50 a week. And just to give you a sense of that, the biggest annual rise prior to that was $25 and that was the year before. So what we've seen is an accelerating rate of rent growth, and they've gone up a lot, and uh, that's hurting a lot of Kiwis. So why do you think that's why do you think that's happening? Well, one thing that we know is that when the government in March announced their housing package and released the cabinet papers that went with that, there was explicit advice from housing officials not to add additional taxes to landlords because they believed it would lead to increased rents. And in particular, they were concerned that would hit lower income tenants uh, because some houses would be sold, particularly by highly leveraged landlords, and that would lead to churn in the rental market. And it does appear that the officials got it right. That is exactly what's happening. So one of the uh, problems here, though, is that we have a fixed amount of housing in the market. And when a landlord sells, they're selling the same house uh, to someone who's going to own it. Now, who mm. may be a landlord themselves or may be uh, an owner-occupier. So, you know, perhaps that's a tenant becoming an owner-occupier. How mm. is it that we can see more people on the waiting list mm. when we have, you know, the same housing stock, we haven't had lots of houses just go up and smoke, mm. and we haven't had many people <laughs> come in as, as migrants. Mm. So why is it suddenly a lot of people are going onto the waiting list? There seems to be you know, a net reduction in supply of houses for people who are renting. What's going on there? Yeah, well, look, I first want to acknowledge your point, which is in order to address the renting crisis, in order to address the affordability crisis, we need to increase supply of houses. But to your point, what's happened to those homes? Well, what we know is that in the past four years, the state house waiting list has tripled. Uh, it's now 25,000 people. And what landlords say is that increasingly, they have been reluctant to take on tenants uh, who they are uh, not sure will necessarily pay the rent each week uh, because they've got an alternative now, Airbnb. And I think there are a number of properties that landlords are choosing to take out of the rental market, to put into that short-term market. It's likely in some cases that people can't afford the rent and so they're moving in with relatives. Uh, there's a number of things going on. Uh, but ultimately, the situation we're in is one where we need more homes. We need landlords competing for tenants rather than tenants competing for landlords. So um, Megan Woods responded in Parliament that the government was pulling all the levers it could. Look how many houses it had built, um, had on the books, you know, an extra 8,000 houses that were either built or being built by uh, Kainga Ora. This was the biggest increase in state house building since the late 80s, much mm. more than the previous national government had produced. And um, you just needed to wait. The housing supply would come. Well, look, we've done a lot of work, Bernard, to unpick those figures a bit because they don't seem to marry up to what we're seeing on the ground or what we're hearing from private developers who tell us they believe Kainga Ora is very slow, very inefficient, hasn't been building state houses at the rate they should be. And what the numbers actually show is that Kainga Ora is demolishing a lot of homes while building more. And what that meant in the last six months for which we have data was that Kainga Ora uh, removed 
five more homes than it built. So mm. over time, they're not actually adding to the state housing stock at the pace you would expect. Now, let me be clear. I've got no problem with Kainga saying, let's get rid of those old houses and let's put up some denser new townhouses instead or apartments. And that's a, um, that's a good process. But it should be happening a lot faster. Four years in, uh, with a government that promised they'd be ramping up the state house build, you shouldn't be in a situation where over a six-month period you're taking down more houses than you're building. So, and overall, the governments uh, through Kainga are looking to build more than 10,000 houses or so. The various estimates around about the housing supply shortage range from 50,000 to, you know, put your finger in the air and put, put, <laughs> put six digits in front of it. Could be 100, could be 200. You could be housing minister in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, what would National do on the supply front that's different from what Labor are doing? So three things. Uh, the first thing is uh, we have always said if you want to encourage the building of more homes, you have to address your planning constraints. We were very pleased to work with the government on the housing supply bill, uh, which does remove a lot of those constraints in our big urban centres. There is more work to do. We still need to make it easier to do greenfields development and to do other forms of high density housing development across New Zealand. So more RMA reform is required. But we is also it, need to acknowledge the infrastructure constraint. Is that where you were going to go? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so that is very real. Yeah. And uh, we acknowledge that, which is that local government say to us, uh, when we look at our funding instruments, when we look at what growth means for us in terms of the upfront cost of putting in pipes, of doing that, it still doesn't always add up. So National uh, is working very hard on what we call policies funding for growth. How do we reimagine the relationship both between central and local government, but also between local government and regional government in particular areas to come up with investment and infrastructure plans that genuinely encourage growth. And one model that we're uh, examining is the city deal model, which has been used in some parts of the world, where there's a partnership between local and uh, central government. They agree on long-term goals. They agree on uh, which big infrastructure projects will happen. And there is genuine incentives for local government to build more houses. We want them to benefit from that. So how are they going to benefit financially? Because one of the complaints they have is that at the moment, all this population growth, pre-COVID obviously, um, generated lots of GST and income revenue, which the government kept. Mm. And at least half of the infrastructure costs for that population growth, let alone catching up on past underinvestment, mm. landed on ratepayers, which meant they had to either increase their debt, and in some cases they said they weren't able to, mm. uh, or increase and or increase their rates. So what would a national government do to financially incentivize those councils to, to see... Um, good things from growth as opposed to a pain in the ass. Yeah, and look, there's a range of different instruments that could be used uh, to get over the problem that at the moment you essentially have to ask current ratepayers to pay for the costs that will be incurred by future ratepayers, and that's difficult at a local government level. We've in the past uh, proposed, for example, just a very straight incentive payment for dwellings consented over historic averages, just making a direct payment to local government. That would have its challenges too. Another option is, of course, to allow local government to have a greater share of GST. Another option is to look at other financing instruments. So, for example, uh, there are instruments at the moment, the infrastructure financing tools that are available to local government, but they haven't been taken up. So what are the barriers there? So we don't have a final policy on this. This is a space that you should watch because we are very clear that there needs to be better funding and financing arrangements for infrastructure at a local level. Now, I um, criticised the government and the Prime Minister this week uh, for, for A, continuing to say they wanted housing affordability, while at the same time saying they didn't want house prices to fall. <laughs> the, um, the horses bolted now so that simply holding house prices flat would mean waiting 10, 20, 30 years, depending on what happens to incomes, which mm. means essentially sentencing an entire generation of home buyers to unaffordability. Mm. Uh, what would National do differently to ensure we get to affordability reasonably quickly, which implies 
um, some quite dramatic house price falls if you're going to do it anytime soon. Yeah, well, as I say, you first have to look at those underlying uh, supply constraints. Uh, and it's been quite curious watching Labor come around to that as a fundamental challenge, because, of course, when they were elected, they were really committed to 100,000 Kiwi built homes as the solution. As that failed and they've got more and more advice, they've realised that supply is the solution too. We hold to that and we think that that's very important. I also see great potential in the build to rent sector. We currently have constraints in New Zealand that mean that investors don't come here to build those long-term rental properties the way they do in other parts of the world. Uh, and I've, I've put forward a bill that would address some of those barriers. I see uh, great potential for that sector. I also acknowledge that there is often some market failure when it comes to people wanting to invest in housing for lower income New Zealanders, affordable housing. And I think the community housing sector has a much greater role to play there and that central government by backing those community housing providers could both bring on a lot more supply and provide more social and affordable housing across the country. So just like any market, you know, if you add supply to it, mm -hmm. um, enough supply, you push the price down. Mm -hmm. And uh, really for people who are looking to buy their first home, what they want to see is enough supply flood the market so that houses become affordable. Uh, um, how are you going to walk that fine line between flooding the market with supply mm -hmm. and avoiding triggering a price crash um, uh, particularly in the suburbs where many of your supporters might not like that? Well, look, the, the first thing to say is that we have to be clear that governments don't determine the price of houses. They set the settings in which housing is built, but they shouldn't determine it. And um, I, okay. like you, was pretty concerned when Prime Minister Ardern said, when asked about house prices, oh, well, what people need to see is that they continue to grow at a moderate rate. I don't think that was appropriate from the Prime Minister because actually any asset class whether it's houses, whether it's shares on the share market, uh, whether it's uh, fine wine, uh, there is a potential for it to go up and down in value. And the reality in New Zealand right now, as you know, is, and there's a few different measures of this, but um, by the measure I have, house price to income ratios are at about one to nine completely out of whack with the countries we usually like to compare ourselves to, and actually a lot worse than when Labor came to office, where it was about one to six, and a lot worse than it was 20 years prior, when there was actually a time it was one to three. So I think it's inarguable. We have to bring that ratio down. Now, do you, do, do you, have you seen the questions from the audience, Bernard? There's a couple oh, of things yes. on the right-hand right -hand side. for. <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, we've got a couple of questions from our audience here. Um, uh, um, you might want to scroll back a little bit. Yes. Okay. So th there's a good question here from mm. uh, G. Uh, hi, G. Uh, <laughs> to um, on the issue of uh, building materials and skills capacity. Mm. You know, um, might be nice for me to say let's flood the market with new houses when there aren't obviously uh, enough building materials at reasonable prices. Or um, skilled builders right now. Mm. How, how would national change things so that um, uh, you know we, we had the people and the bits to make the houses? Yeah. Look, I acknowledge that there's some real challenges in the building construction sector at the moment, both in terms of materials, but also skilled labour uh, to actually build houses. So there's a couple of things there. The first is we have to recognise that for people in construction, time is money. So while you may have con some constraints and uh, slowdowns and getting supplies, it's made even worse if you're then waiting for the building inspector to come, you're waiting for the consent to happen. So anything we can do to reduce that compliance uh, reduces the costs for the construction sector. And that's quite significant. Um, the, the other part of that uh, that I think is important is we need to do a better job of allowing construction firms to import building materials from around the world uh, in a way that means we have a more competitive market for building supplies. Yeah, I mentioned in um, this morning's email from the Kaka about a situation where Windstone Woolboards, which makes uh, jibboard, has just announced that they're not going to take any more orders uh, from uh, uh, anyone or process them from July and will essentially ration jibboard out into the market. And uh, when you look at the numbers reported by StatsNZ, 
uh, we've seen a double digit uh, inflation of building materials costs in the first nine months of 2021. And we're, we're hearing that there are significant price increases coming. What would National do to try to um, uh, make these markets more competitive? For mm -hmm. example, uh, Jib Board, 94% uh, market share for that company, which is owned by Fletcher Building. Yeah. And uh, they also have more than 90% of the Pink Bats market. Yeah, well, we need James and, and a simple um, response to that is you'd think what should happen uh, if there's a constraint on JIB is that I can then call up another supplier from somewhere else in the world and say, we're going to need your product. Let's order it now. The problem for us is a regulatory problem in New Zealand, whereby the process for getting approval for parallel products is often extremely cumbersome and difficult. So we want to look at that process to align it much better with the rest of the world where, you, where uh, importers aren't required to reimagine their own standards and do their own assessments. Often uh, we could actually have aligned standards with other countries. So there's much more we could do to make our building uh, product market more competitive. Now, there's a good question here from Sol Rock, um, uh, who's in the audience. Uh, does National support the Reserve Bank introducing debt to income controls? Uh, before we do that, I just wanted to um, touch on this issue of um, the lending into the mortgage market. This week, you proposed some changes to the law to um, uh, overcome some of the issues that people are having with getting mortgage applications through the banks because of the new triple CFA law, mm. which uh, in theory forces banks to do what loan sharks have to do now, which is uh, um, check all sorts of measures of uh, affordability, ask people what they had for breakfast, whether they're pregnant, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. So what, what did you propose this week on that front? Yeah, look, we've been really concerned about the impact that the regulations under the triple CFA have had. Uh, the examples that have been brought to my office have included people with 70% equity in a home wanting to buy a bigger home for the family uh, and being rejected on the basis that they're spending too much on swimming lessons and my food bag. And that's just, you know, silly. Uh, and let alone the people who've got pre-approval to buy a home and then find it falls over because they've been spending too much on coffee. So banks historically have not acted in that way. They have made good judgments based on their assessment of your credit worthiness because they don't want you to default on your loan. And we think the approach that the government has taken with highly prescriptive regulation around how the major trading banks make those decisions goes too far. Uh, the minister could simply undo the regulation uh, through ordering council, and he's welcome to do that. Um, he hasn't shown signs of willingness. So we've said, well, here's a bill uh, that would address what appears to be your concern, which is that you continue to want loan sharks to have a high degree of regulation. Well, why not exclude your regulated financial institutions from that and give them more permissive regulatory environment so that they can go back to the status quo where they were able to make good judgments about who they lend to. So uh, we saw a report this morning from Rob Stock. He interviewed David Clark, the Commerce Minister, who came back and said, we're not going to accept Nicola Willis's bill, but we are looking to do some faster, smaller tweaks, regulatory tweaks, which wouldn't require legislative change. And um, that, that's apparently what the banks want. Um, what's your view on faster, smaller regulatory tweaks rather than a carve-out? Well, well, look, I welcome the Minister uh, finally conceding that tweaks are needed. Uh, because up until we wrote to him with our bill, uh, he hadn't made that acknowledgement. So that is progress in itself. Uh, we'll wait and see what those tweaks are and whether they go far enough. Uh, our concern here is to ensure that banks are able to apply good judgment to these decisions uh, and aren't tied up in red tape frankly, written by people in the Ministry of Business who often don't have any banking experience uh, and, and that we think has been highly counterproductive. And uh, a question from Sol, um, what about those debt to income controls? The government hasn't given it the final tick off, the Reserve Bank's working on it. Mm. The previous national government rejected the idea in 2017. What mm. would you do? Uh, with your finance minister, if the Reserve Bank came and said, right, we've got these debt-to-income multiples, 
It's yeah. going to be great. It's going to be five or six. Yeah. Well, look, National needs to keep a watching brief on that, uh, on the advice and analysis that comes out. Our concern always has been and was historically in 2017, the impact that has on potential first-to-home buyers, because they are the ones who most often have to stretch that debt-to-income ratio to get into a home. Uh, so that has always been our concern. Of course, we uh, also respect the independence of the Reserve Bank and its role when it comes to financial stability. But we, we do get very concerned about the impact DTIs can have for first-time buyers. So um, you're keen to get the banks to lend into the market. You're not keen on, on a DTI. Um, isn't the basic issue here with house prices, there's just too much leverage, bank lending, pumped into that market. And at some point, if you're going to make it affordable, you're going to have to deleverage in some way, surely. Well, there's no doubt that when the Reserve Bank put the money hose on high and pumped the economy with cash, uh, that that actually, uh, I'm using a very mixed and terrible metaphor now, fanned the flames uh, that were already there. Uh, but the point is, actually, the thing that the government has the most control over is still supply. You do need to have a responsive supply side so that when there is that additional demand, supply keeps up with it. So we continue to think that's the foundational thing. Uh, but of course, there's no doubt that the highly stimulatory measures by the Reserve Bank have contributed to asset inflation. So just to, um, to finish off here, just to get you on the record, uh, <laughs> um, one of my criticisms of the government is that it has not actually come out with a housing affordability target or what mm. it thinks that it should be. Now, um, interest.co's measure of uh, house price to income multiples has it at nine to one, one to nine, and the OECD last week put it at 11 to one. Um, most measures pre-GFC were that three was a proper number to go mm -hmm. for, for home buyers. Um, Chris Parker at the Auckland Council uh, back in 2017. He's a smart man. Yes. Uh, wrote a paper saying Auckland Council should argue, should uh, go for five. Mm. So what, and Nick Smith, when he was housing minister, actually wrote into the special housing legislation that four, was, four. A, four, four was a good number. So, and, and once we know that number, then we start, can start to understand a, how long it might take if we've got flat prices mm. or falling prices or rising prices. And then we, we actually get to the nitty gritty of it. Mm. Do the politicians want house or would allow house prices to fall? So what's what's your you know housing affordability North Star? So here's the commitment I'll make that no minister in the current government has made, which is that we commit to reducing that ratio. We will not let it keep climbing. We will arrest it and we will bring it down. Now, ultimately, uh, there is a reason uh, that economists and Nick Smith and others said one to three, one to four, one to five, because that is an index of what is affordable in an economy. And that is correct. But I can do maths and I acknowledge how very far away we are from that right now. And I don't want to be one of those politicians who says, here's 100,000 Kiwi build houses, people, I'm promising them to you. So I'm not going to say we'll get it to one to three uh, immediately with the national government. But what we are absolutely committed to is bringing that ratio down. But do you adhere to what I call the magical thinking of the Prime Minister, which is, yes, we can afford, afford, afford improve affordability, but at the same time, we're not going to let house prices fall. And I, I thought that moment in the last uh, debate of the, of the last election where Patty Gower asked Judith Collins and Jacinda Ardern together, do you want house prices to fall? Judith Collins said, you know, well, it might have to fall in some places. And mm. Jacinda Ardern said no. Mm. And it is a bit of a litmus test now of how serious someone is and whether they want to be credible. Mm. Do, do you accept that house prices will have to fall mm -hmm. to get that improvement in affordability sometime soon? You know what? I reckon the vast majority of New Zealanders accept that. When I uh, talk to home buyers, uh, sorry, homeowners who've had 20% house price rises in the last year, they know that that is not sustainable and they quite uh, readily expect that there will be a correction of that and that that level of growth simply can't be baked in and actually begs for some sort of reduction in the future. Um, as I said earlier, I don't think it's appropriate for politicians to say this is uh, th that with no asset will reduce in value because actually uh, that we shouldn't be sending signals to the market like that. The market will operate uh, according to supply and demand, uh, and that can include going down as well as going up. 
So um, this is the really interesting thing, because we're, we're at a moment in history now, very similar to what we saw in the uh, 1980s, when we had an inflation problem and inflation expectations were out of control, and the Labour and national parties essentially came together and said, right, we have to change inflation expectations. We're going to give a new empowered reserve bank independence and an inflation target to break those inflation expectations. And Don Brash, as the independent governor, will have a tool, an interest rate tool, to essentially bash the economy over the head until we get those inflation expectations under control. What's to stop, or wouldn't it be a good idea for, again, that cross-party agreement to break those house price inflation expectations and send a signal so that people don't think, oh, they're not really serious this time, well, I, I don't really know what that mechanism is, um, and I'm not sure that that's really the solution. I do agree on the point that there are some things we should be cross-party on, and actually the housing supply bill, um, I think, was a really significant example of that because having read the productivity commission reports that you have and i can see them they're used <laughs> to stack as laptop everyone uh that are just so clear that what has held back new zealand's housing market for so very long has been incredibly restrictive planning laws where we make it very hard to build homes uh to have the major parties come together and say actually we're going to stop giving everyone their say we're going to stop people being able to decline new houses in their neighborhood we're going to put in a blanket requirement that all local government allow up to three dwellings of three stories on every section in urban New Zealand. That was a really big cross-party gesture, and I think proportionate to the scale of the crisis both parties see in front of us. So there will be other opportunities for that kind of work. Uh, and as I say, National's absolutely committed to housing affordability. Nicola Willis, the housing spokesperson for National, with us here on... Um, Vahoon, the weekly Hoon. Um, I think they probably should have gone for her rather than Luxon, shouldn't they? Yes. <laughs> that was Peter just suggesting that you would have made a better leader than Christopher Luxon, and I'll I'll let you go away and drink your your gin and tonic. Ah, oh, this is this is lovely. Yes, this isn't a, always part of the deal. No, no, you're welcome to have gin and tonic. Thank there. you, thank and, you. Um, we are now about to say Jesus. I think we are going to have to adopt gin and tonics as the as the. Yes. You know, we're definitely going to have to go down that route. That's that's right. So um, that's it for us, I think. We're just well, wait a second. Wait a second, Bill. Oh, oh, the skateboarding dog. Well, we got to. So, but just so we we did have a couple of people say, "Why on earth have you got a national politician there? We want both sides." I don't think we want to do both sides thing, but I think we do want to be clear that this was an experiment after having Rodney to see if we could try another person. It just happened in this case to be a politician. But any anybody you suggest, and in fact, somebody suggested Raf Manji, who we both know. Um, I'd love to have Ruff on. Um, I think it's, you know, please give us, please give Bernard really any feedback uh, about who you would like to see. Bourbon and Coke, yeah. No, we're not going to be drinking bourbon and Coke. <laughs> yes, um, no, no, this is a good question. You know, what about having some other politicians on? And um, I have asked all of the um, ministers and opposition spokespeople in uh, finance, commerce, housing, environment um and and the leaders to uh, to do interviews and to come on to the hoon over the next few months and we will have more um special guests um and uh, we really appreciate nicola coming in right yeah because one of the reasons yeah. I, I didn't i didn't suggest nicola you you found nicola but one of the reasons i thought she was going to be interesting was having watched her when labor didn't put anybody up for news hub nation one day she just owned the entire show she could have presented it as well and she said yeah. she had rare credibility for a New Zealand politician, as far as I could see. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's good to see um, politicians out and about talking in public, and uh, we look forward to a lot so more. So do, do, shall we do a skateboarding dog story or two? Yes. skateboarding so dog, what have we got? So the, the two stories that I really loved this week was what's called the, the Wagatha Christie uh, uh, mystery that's going on in England, where Colleen Rooney, the wife of, um, of Rooney the footballer, Wayne Rooney the footballer, is being sued by um, uh, another football another football wag wife and girlfriend for defamation. Um, she, she Colleen performed a rather tricky sting by removing all but one of the um, recipients of her Instagram um, uh, feed, which then led her directly to Vardy, this woman, uh, and. Um, 
so but she's now being and the language that they used about each other was absolutely fabulous it was included the c word which i rather rudely used a minute, a minute ago for something else um but also one of the great aspects of it is that the not only was the footballer's husband the uh sorry the sorry <laughs> the footballing husband the footballer's wife and their press secretary all lost their telephones on the same day as the as the letter arrived from the lawyers saying we'd like you to retain your telephone for so they, all they information. All went to the beach and they all yeah yeah that one was on one day. was dropped in the North Sea. Uh, yeah. You know, quite it happens to me all the time. Actually, I did drop my telephone in the uh, off off Kauai recently, which I just sorry uh, that that was a painful episode. The other story I loved this week, which turned out to be the most read story on the Financial Times, is about why why Jeff why the richest man in the world is such a terrible dresser. Um, and it's um, Jeff Bezos with more more treasure than Scrooge McDuck, McDuck looks like hell. What gives? And of course, what they the, the point that they make about him is the appalling outfit with the ludicrous Texan boots and the um, scruffed up Texan hat that he wore on what they describe as a space dildo to fly up to um, the blue you know in, in, to go on his Blue Origin trip. Um, but also, there's an interesting new angle for this New Zealand angle on this, of course, because this is the week in which um, the bridge in Rotterdam is supposed to be um, taken down in all, or part of it is going to be taken down in order to get Jeff Bezos's super yacht through. Now, the New Zealand angle, of course, is that Jeff Bezos's super yacht's masts are under construction in Avondale. Ah. And they're probably the largest masts ever built for a, for a yacht like this. And they pivot in order to get the get it through the through through the bridges around the world, and particularly the Golden Gate and the Panama Panama Canal. So we're not going to have to take down the Auckland Harbour Bridge to get Jeff Bezos's mask. No, I think we'd lift it up with an air hook. Yeah. Oh, no, that's good. Here is a picture of said uh, bad clothing. I, I love the um, description in that FT article of Jeff Bezos being like the uh, divorced dentist with the Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah, which I think I'll just pop up to Joe Voice Road and see a couple. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you All very right. much, Peter. It's been wonderful Thank you, everybody. Um, to talk. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, Kakite or not, we'll see you again at four o'clock next Friday for Vahoon on the Kaka with me, Bernard Hickey, and Peter Bale. And we'll oh, and Nicola. And another special guest. <laughs>